Hey, what's going on, everyone? Welcome to the Over the Cap podcast. It is July 16th, 2022, and this is Jason Fitzgerald. You can find me on Twitter at Jason underscore OTC, or you can email me at Jason at overthecap.com. As usual, I am joined by Nelly. Nelly, do you have anything this week? No. Even though we're a little bit earlier in the day, Nelly still has nothing. So we're actually doing this one in the early evening instead of the Later nights, my uh, daughter is still away uh, from her dance competition. They'll be back in a little uh, little while. They went away for that competition. I didn't go with them. Uh, I posted this on Twitter, but Megan's team did end up winning first in their nationals for, uh, I guess, the, the best routine for 12 and under, best overall. So she was very happy about that. So congratulations to Megan for uh, all of her work that she did on the dance routines. I think she was in five dances this year um so they had two that went to the finals and i guess the one dance i guess is the one that got the the best overall award i guess i'll find out a little bit more tonight or tomorrow uh on that so anyway our beer of the week um i'm going with the other half green diamonds so kevin cole suggested this and a couple other people chimed in uh as well just on this brewery in particular so before this, while doing some work outside, I, uh, I tried their Mosaic beer, which is a lower alcohol content. I think the Mosaic is actually more flavorful than this one. This one is a uh, probably considered a double, I would guess. Yeah, it, I'm just looking at the label now. It's double dry hop, so it'd be considered a double. It's 8.5% uh, by volume. I think the, um, the Mosaic was definitely more... Um, a little bit more on the fruity side, a little bit more uh, flavorful than this. This is pretty good. Uh, as far as a double goes, I, I could definitely see how you could sit there and drink a bunch of these without too much trouble. But I usually like stuff that's a, a little bit either uh, going to be more flavorful, more bitter kind of stuff. And I don't feel like the, the bitterness is really there with this or the flavor. Uh, but it, it's Certainly pretty good. I, I would recommend that you try it out if you have a chance for it. It's a little on the pricey side. I don't know if that's because they have pretty limited distribution in Jersey. I would guess that's probably the case. Uh, I kind of find that found this hiding at the liquor store. So I would guess that's more the case uh, for this one because it's, it's only a couple dollars more than kind of local breweries that we have right here in the town that I live in, in uh, Mount Olive. So... I would guess that's probably what it's from, but it's pretty good. So thank you for the suggestion. And for everybody else who gave the uh, suggestions this week, uh, it's always helpful to, you know, have a couple different options for beers. So uh, I'll probably ask again next week if I'm going to be drinking during the podcast and um, see what I can find. A lot of times I can't find the stuff that people suggest. Uh you know, this one, I, I was surprised. I, I hadn't seen this before, but I think it's because the labels don't really stand out in terms of showing you the name of the brewery. Uh, so I, th I think that's a big reason why this one probably didn't stand out. For some of the others that people suggested, I just haven't seen them uh, really other than like Victory and uh, you know, a couple things. And every time I always ask, there's always someone that's going to suggest Miller or Natty Light or something like that. Yes, we can always get those. Um, but yeah, this is uh, this is pretty good. I, I would say that I would add the... I'd certainly add the Mosaic to the regular rotation. Uh, this one I'm going to determine, I, I guess, during the, the course of the podcast or maybe later tonight, if I'll add this to the uh, rotation or not. 
Um, otherwise, things are going pretty good here before we get into uh, the NFL stuff. I kind of feel like physically I'm, I'm finally getting over that COVID thing. I guess I'm just one of those people that it didn't hit hard. Um, you know, I saw Jenna Lane post something awful about, uh, you know, issues that she was having and other people that have gotten it real bad. You know, my father had this pretty bad when he got the COVID and I think he pretty much had long COVID from it. Um, for me, it was just being like tired, like lethargic, uh, you know, even when I was past the point of, you know, where, where you're still going out in a mask, you know, after those first five days. And I know I mentioned this about being in Disney World and just still being kind of tired, you know, going to the gym, it was like playing basketball. I was kind of beat. Um, lifting weights, my weights had gone I felt like way down. Um, so today I was able to squat 305 for five reps. So I kind of felt like that was kind of somewhat back to where it was. And then then I did a couple half squats just above that. You know, I had mentioned before that I kind of hurt my back before. So I just kind of wanted to load the bar up really just to, to get my back feeling it. But the other week when I went to lift, I did 275. And I thought I was going to die trying to squat 275. Um, now I, I do go when I when I do the full squatting I, I do go full you know ass to grass kind of squats, but I thought I was going to die doing two seventy five and I was like this should not be difficult in any way shape or form. Uh, you know typically I bench you know right around two ninety five. I usually don't push the squat uh, just because I hurt my back every now and then, so I usually don't push that. Bench is a pretty short movement so i usually push that one a little more so usually i can do a couple sets or uh five you know around 300 um 305 maybe on a good day 315 um but again it was like doing 275 i was barely getting five up and usually for 275 i could do i don't know probably seven or eight um you know i was barely getting that up. So I, I kind of feel like I'm at least getting back into it. But yeah, it, it's kind of a weird thing. I guess it just impacts everybody different, um, the the way that, that that stuff is. So, you know, hopefully these new variants or whatever aren't going to be even worse for people. Um, but yeah, it, but yeah, this, this was the first week where kind of getting back to, um, I kind of feel like getting back to normal with uh with doing everything physically um from where it was before now i'm a little on the older side but you know it's uh you know just kind of a weird thing um you know the the way that 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 stuff i guess impacts everyone so i'm sure nobody really wants to hear about that so let's get on to the football stuff so uh as expected the franchise tag deadline came and went with a whimper uh i think you could tell from what i mentioned last week that there really wasn't much that was going to go on. And the one that I was most curious about was Orlando Brown. And I think that's what I mainly want to talk about today is that one, because there were a lot of details that came out about that deal. And I, I didn't try to confirm any of those details or anything. Sometimes I will. I didn't really bother in this case because there were a lot of people that had details on it. Um you know, in the details that were originally leaked, I, I think made the Chiefs look better than they were in terms of what they offered. But at the same time, 
you know, last week, what I said about all of these, all of the players on the franchise tag, whether it was here or on Twitter, I can't exactly remember. But one of the things that I mentioned was that the deals this year, if they were going to get done, were going to be on the team terms. The teams were not going to get bullied into doing contracts. You know, every now and then you'll see a team that will get maybe bullied isn't the right word, but they'll get pushed into doing a contract they probably shouldn't do. You know, the Jets with Muhammad Wilkerson, uh, gosh, that's probably five, six years ago at this point, where at the last second they were able to come to an agreement, which the, the Jets obviously regretted about a month after that deal was signed. But, you know, you see that from time to time. Other times the teams kind of crack the whip and they hold a lot of leverage. And I think that was the situation that existed here with all these players, you know, and that, and that goes back to when Dallas and Denver had Des Bryant and Demarius Thomas on franchise tags, and they got them to take deals around $15 million a year when they should have been paid significantly more than that. And that, that led to really a depressed wide receiver market for quite some time because those teams were able to exploit that leverage and you know use it to get really good contracts at the last minute. So with Brown, it looks like what the Chiefs did here is the Chiefs essentially offered a contract that would average $18.2 million a year. Um, just as a, a frame of reference, that would rank... Let me just pull it up. I should have had it open already. But uh, that should rank one, two, three, four, five. Sixth in the NFL amongst the left tackles. I'm not going to get into the right tackles just yet. But fifth in terms of number at left tackle. Not sixth, I'm sorry. Um, which isn't bad. It's not good. It's not great. It's okay. Um, that's what would have ranked. At the last minute, it sounds like the Chiefs came in with a, look, you want to say you're the highest paid player in the league, We'll do a phony baloney deal with you. We'll throw you a last year on the contract worth 40-something million dollars. And you can say you make 23.5 a year, 23.1 a year. I, I forget what the, the final number was on that. But he was going to be the highest paid player. Uh, and it doesn't really, you know, it, it's not legitimate. Um, the highest paid player at left tackle at this point, and I'm not saying that Brown should be the highest paid left tackle, We'll get to that in a second. But the, the highest paid left tackle on paper is Trent Williams at $23 million a year. Um, Williams' contract, though, was also a, a contract that has kind of some funny money at the end. Um, what's in there. So, you know, he's an older player. So he's not going to see years five and year six on his deal. If you look at the four-year value on his contract, so he's at 81.65 over four. Whoops. Let me just pull that up here. And for some reason, my computer doesn't want to behave at all. So he's at about 20.5 million a year is really his value. Um, as to where he is. Your true clubhouse leader is Bakhtiari, who is at $92 million over four. So his is a legitimate extension at 23. 
You have Tunsil on a legitimate extension at 22. You have Stanley at 19.75. And um, uh, you have Williams, where, where I just mentioned. So those are your like elite-level players are really at those, those kind of values. Um, the other stuff that the Chiefs offered, it was reported they offered the biggest signing bonus uh, among all players at left tackle. I think that was Schefter that said that. Uh, so the highest signing bonus was 30.1. I believe Schefter said 30.25 was the number. Um, my guess is it was going to be a $30.25 million signing bonus and probably a minimum P5 because there was no talk about him getting the most cash up front. Most cash up front is Ronnie Stanley at 41.75, followed by Bakhtiari at 39 million. Uh, Williams is at 32.4. So it's possible he could have gotten above Williams, but it probably would have been in that kind of in that ballpark. Um, your three year values on these players 70.5 million for Bakhtiari, 66 million for Tunsil, 63.75. Uh, for Stanley, Williams is at 60.75. I would guess that the Chiefs were probably going to actually be around a legitimate 18-2 uh, over three. So I'm going to guess they were probably going to be right around 55 million, uh, maybe a little bit above. Maybe they would have put him a little above Jake Matthews. I'm going to guess he wasn't going to reach the Trent Williams number, um, you know, that he would have been somewhere in between. Now, that's just my conjecture. Uh, but I'm going to guess that's where he would have been. So, you know, a, a lot of people, th there's been a lot of um, various types of feedback on this contract offer. And, you know, the people who are very pro-Chiefs are first got hooked on this. Well, they're offering him like $23.5 a year. Okay, they're not. So let, let's just put that aside. And then the next thing is that they're offering him 18-2. And I think when you put that in context, in my opinion, all right, I think that the, the process itself is a little bit insulting to him. Um, you know, I, I don't think that it's the chief's intention to be insulting, but I think if it was me getting that offer, I would find the 18-2 insulting and I would certainly find... The we'll throw you forty million in this last year that we're not going to honor under any possible circumstance, so you can say you're the highest paid. I would kind of find that insulting. I would be like, okay, what do you? Am I an idiot? Like that? That would be my take on it if I was him. All right, I, I think I, I would be a little insulted by the offer. Uh, I think that I would be. Um. I think that it would take a bad situation because a lot of times when the players are on the franchise tag, they don't like it. And it's understandable. You know, mm -hmm. he is going to play this year for $16.66 million when the first year cash numbers for other left tackles, 16.6, would rank, uh, let's see, where would that be? 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16th in the league. So, you know, that's not a good number, all right? Because if he signs an extension, especially when you, you've, you know, you're expecting something, you're probably expecting 35, 39, 40, whatever those numbers are. So 
I, I have a feeling that this probably makes him want to dig his heels in a little bit more on maybe holding out during camp and then reporting in week one uh, is obviously the way this is going to go. Um, but I think that you would find the deal just a little bit insulting from his perspective. That being said, I, I think there is a big disconnect with what people are saying is a left tackle market being paid like a left tackle and what the Chiefs offered him. All right. So I think from the Chiefs perspective, the way they saw this is when we traded for him last year, our feeling was if he establishes himself as a quality left tackle, we envision him as kind of a second tier left tackle. He's not the elite. He's not an elite player. And I think most people would agree with that. You know, Trent Williams is an elite player. David Bakhtiari is an elite player. Now, these guys are older as well. Tunsil, elite, you know, people consider him an elite player. Um, so you you get down from there and then you get to Stanley, who I think people also consider an elite player. Obviously, he's been hurt the last two years and he's at 19.75. And you get into the next group of players which is Jake Matthews at 18.5, Colton Miller at 18, Cam Robinson this year at 17.5, before that Garrett Bowles at 17. Um, you know, I think when you when you take yourself back in time to when this trade came down, the market that existed then was the elite level players, which Brown is not, and the second tier which was, Mil at the time, it was Miller at 18, Bowles at 17, I think Luan at 16, Donovan Smith was probably at 15.5 or 15, Decker was around 15. So that those were basically your, your top draft picks who were above average or decent left tackles. You know, they, they didn't light the world on fire. You know, some of them, like Bowles, didn't even get his option picked up. Um but they're serviceable, and the fact that you don't have availability of the position says, well, I want to extend them. So I think the Chiefs offer probably was right in line with what the left tackle market was when they made the trade for him. And at the time, you know, people said, well, he wants left tackle money, so he wants over 20. But again, it's only a handful of players that got above 20. And under no circumstance are people going to look at him at that as that player, I don't think. Um, the problem for the Chiefs is that the right tackle market changed. And Brown would certainly be considered a very, very, very high-quality right tackle. Okay? Um about two months after he was traded, maybe it was it was probably less than that. It was probably just a month and a half after he was traded. Ryan Ramchek signed a contract with the Saints that was $19.2 million. At the time, I believe the highest paid pure right tackle, because you, you did have the two outliers. You had Lane Johnson with Philadelphia, who was paid as a left tackle because the feeling was if he went into free agency, he would be a left tackle. So he got 18. And uh, Trent Brown, who signed with the Raiders in free agency for 16, 
I think it was. And, you know, he was obviously a bust with them, but I think it was 16 and he was obviously negotiating with other teams as a left tackle. So they paid him as a left tackle. The market at the time was Mitchell Schwartz, I think was your top guy at like 11 or 12. And that was just a one year extension. Um, Let me pull up those numbers on him. I think he was the highest paid right tackle. Uh, let's see. Yeah, they did the one-year extension at 11-3. I believe that was the highest paid. But once Ramchek signs that deal at 19-2, things change. And it changed a lot because at the time, my feeling was like, all right, teams are going to look at this and they are going to say, all right, they're paying him because they think he's going to be the left tackle because they're going to let Armstead walk because they don't have the cap room and, you know, he's been hurt a lot. They, they don't have the space to maintain him. But very quickly, the Panthers signed their guy after that to 17 a year. Um, and I don't remember the order that came next. Braden Smith is at 17.5. Brian O'Neill is at 18.5. That changes the dynamic of the market. But before that, when the Chiefs made the trade, getting paid as a left tackle meant getting paid around 17 or $18 million a year. Maybe, you know, depending on where, where you rank. So uh, I'll say between 15 and $18 million a year versus getting paid between 9 and 11 That was the difference. That was getting paid like a left tackle. It wasn't about getting paid like you're an elite left tackle. Maybe you could prove that you could be an elite left tackle, but it was about proving that you could be paid like a left tackle. When the right tackle market shifted, that changes the dynamic. And we don't really have a lot of data that shows us that the left tackle market is changing because of those right tackle contracts. Now, I believe it does. When I talked about positional spending a couple of weeks ago on here, what do we mention? We mentioned about how the bottom of the market really actually has more of an impact on the top going up than the other way around. You know, we, we often think that it's the, it goes top down, but it's really bottom up. As the bottom of the market rises, those better players start to have more of an argument that they should be paid more versus the, you know, going the other way around where they have to state their case against the, you know, the current top guy. You know, unless the top guy is that good that forms a block, you know, the the Aaron Donald, Aaron Rodgers in his prime. Those guys block the market. But other than that, it's a bottom-up movement. So, if our right tackles are moving up, logically we should think our left tackles are moving up. So, you saw the Eagles with basically one or two years under his belt, um, you know, they extended their guy at 16 with uh, 40.9 million guaranteed. And, you know, Jake Matthews got up to 18.5. And that, that's probably okay for a veteran player, um, you know, getting there. And then you've got Cam Robinson getting to 17, almost 17.6 uh, with 33 guaranteed. You know, it, it's basically they, they were locked in on that franchise tag stuff and, um, you know, whatever they were thinking of with uh, with doing that. So, you know, they do those deals. And Brad is the one who brought up the Cam Robinson one, and he's right. 
you know, that that's a little indication that there should be a shift up because a Cam Robinson style player before this was probably worth 13, 14, 12, you know, somewhere in that range. And it, logically, it makes sense. If right tackle has shifted by like seven, eight million dollars a year, it's only logical that our left tackle should shift by something similar. So that whether that's a five million dollar jump, a six million dollar jump, it, Robinson's is a little bit different because it's a three year deal. Um, so a, a three year is different than a five. You know, it, it can it can artificially inflate sometimes those uh, annual value numbers and everything else. But in any event, you know, it, it, it is a shift for a player who is not really that great of a player. So I think from Brown's perspective, and I think this is the right perspective to look at this, if he is a right tackle, his market probably should fall somewhere between Brian O'Neill and Ryan Ramchek. Um, I, I don't think that that is out of the realm of possibilities as, you know, the way that you would look at where he's going to be. Um, Brian O'Neill was a second round pick, I believe. Let's see. Yeah, he was number 62 overall. Orlando Brown was a three. Um, you know, sometimes there's a little bit of a difference the way people will look at that. But I think that that's probably a um, a reasonable comparison um, let me just see what we had Brian O'Neill at last year in terms of value. Yeah, we had them pretty equal. So, you know, I, I would say we would look at that as Brian O'Neill as a, uh, a high quality right tackle and Orlando Brown last year as a average left tackle. But I am sure if we, we put, uh, Brown in the right tackle mix, he would be looked at as a high quality player. And I think the, the logical thing is that you you kind of surpass the last guy. Um, I, I don't think that he would have been looked at as highly as uh, Ramchek. Now, Ramchek was hurt last year. Um, you know, only played about 60% of the snaps. He saw action in 10 games, uh, I think is what we, we had him in. But before that, you know, he's a 100% kind of player um you know he's a very very late but he is a first round pick so i i think you're going to look at him as your top of the market guy so i think you have to look at this from brown's point of view and say look if i sell myself as a right tackle i'm going to get 19 18 7 5 19 wherever that number is that's what i'm going to get okay now, I'm asking you to pay me a premium because I'm your left tackle. You can't get a left tackle in free agency, a good one, you know, a a, a player that you could have a long-term future with. You can get guys to play a year. You can't get guys to play five years or three years, four years. Um, you know, so what what is having that left tackle premium worth? And I think that you, you probably come out to a number at that point that's around 20 give or take a little bit, maybe a little bit more, maybe, you know, maybe a little less. I, I, I would think that the the way what would make him happy, I would think, is if you get to 20, it means he got paid more than the Ravens paid Stanley to, to be their left tackle. 
So I think if you're making a serious offer, a serious proposal, you want to keep them. $20 million is the number that you have to give per year on a realistic basis to get the deal done. Now, I'm not saying you have to match the cash flows of the Stanley deal because that wouldn't be the case. You don't have to match the guarantees. Those were all numbers that were put in place because Stanley, by every metric, uh, would have been considered an elite left tackle and they didn't want to get to that 22 range, 23 range. So they came up with different kind of mechanisms they could put in their contracts, which they probably regret now because he's always been hurt. He's been hurt since the minute he signed the deal. Um they put a bunch of different things in that contract in terms of front-end cash in the first two years, um, how much money was going to be guaranteed at signing, what was the total guarantee on the contract. Those numbers are like kind of eye-popping, and that's why the deal got done. That's what Baltimore does. That's why I've said they're going to have problems signing Lamar Jackson unless he really has a good understanding of that. Um but I think if the Chiefs came up with a contract offer that did that, that would have been reasonable. I also think it would have been reasonable in the sense that when they signed Chris Jones a couple of years ago when he was on the franchise tag, your top market player, I think, was at 23, and they signed Chris Jones for 20, right? Um, now, they got Chris Jones on their terms, 20 a year. Uh, they guaranteed him 60, about 38 at signing. The payout they did on the first year was different than this. You know, they obviously they were offering Brown a lot more than he was going to get paid on the tag. The Chris Jones deal was essentially, well, we'll pay you your franchise tag number for this year and the following year, and then it's kind of a we'll see. Um, it was, a, I love the Chris Jones deal for the Chiefs. I, I thought that was a really good deal for them. I thought they, they kind of used that situation to their advantage. Uh, but again, I think when you look at the comparable situations and you look at the markets on those two positions, which are very similar, I think you have to be at 20 to say, okay, we're at least in the same ballpark as where you were with your last franchise tag guy that was worth something. So I don't think the Chiefs made an offer that would say that, you know, we really love you. We want you. You, you are a necessity for our team. They looked at him as a luxury. And I don't think that's wrong from the Chiefs' perspective. You know, it's absolutely 100% correct for Orlando Brown to turn down that contract. Maybe even to feel a little insulted by the contract. It's also, I think, perfectly fine for the Chiefs to have offered that contract. I thought over at PFF, I thought Eric Eager made a really good point when he talked about, you know, when people were bringing up, well, they gave up a lot of draft capital Shouldn't they they kind of be forced to extend him because of that? And it does make you look bad when you when you don't sign a player that you traded a you know a lot to get, even though you, you did get a little bit in return. But I think we we valued that as like a giving up basically a first round pick. They valued it, I know internally is a lot less using that Jimmy Johnson chart and um, devaluing picks by so much by a full year and all that kind of stuff. But he made a good point that when the Chiefs went into this trade last year, the Chiefs had a lot of unknowns, right? I mean, they were taking Kyle Long out of retirement, hoping he could play guard on the offensive line. 
They just spent a fortune on Tooney, you know, relative to the position, you know, 16 a year. Uh, Their two tackles were gone. You know, Fisher got hurt, and so they didn't bring him back. Schwartz was hurt, and they, whether they, I I don't know if they wanted to or not, but they cut him. Um, I don't know what would have happened otherwise if he didn't get hurt. But, uh, you know, they, um, they moved on. You know, from all those players, and you were basically in a state of flux with that offensive line. You saw it in the playoffs the year before. They had some difficulties with all these guys injured. And you kind of looked at this and said, well, you know, this is kind of a retooling effort. Like, we, we're we rebuilding this offensive line. This gives us a good opportunity. This guy wants to play the left side. We'll give him a shot. If it sucks, if he sucks, you know, if he can't duplicate what he did in those... uh he played eight games on the left side in uh, Baltimore. Um, you know, we'll shift him back to the right side where we know he's going to be good. And then we'll pay accordingly. Um, but as things turned out, you know, the way they drafted and their younger players, they got a lot of guys to come in and be good offensive player, offensive linemen. You know, they have a pretty good offensive line. And you've got a quarterback who plays incredibly well. And when you have quarterbacks that play incredibly well, that offsets a lot of your offensive line woes. You know, in, unless you have, and this is me speaking, this I, this wasn't one of Eric's points. The, the other stuff was pretty much Eric, Eric's points. Um, when, you know, a, as long as you don't have a jailbreak lineman, you know, uh, who was it that um, that game? I probably mentioned this before. I think it was Winston Justice on the Eagles that just got obliterated by the Giants. I think I was on my honeymoon. <laughs> it was like, uh, we, we uh, I don't know if we, we were on a cruise. And I, I don't remember if we came into port or I happened to see it online. And it was like the guy <laughs> like seven or eight sacks in the one game. It was like, he, he just didn't belong on the field. As long as you don't have... A turnstile to where when Patrick Mahomes gets the ball and if his clock internally is going to be like 1-1,000, 2-1,000, a half, and I got to throw, as long as it's not going to be, I'm still kind of crouched down and I'm getting pulled down, as long as it's not that, you know, where it's 1-1,000 sack, he's good enough to get away from all that, to, to understand where that pressure might be coming from. And how he has to behave in the pocket post-snap to deal with that. So you get to the point where you don't have to have this great offensive lineman. You just have to make sure you don't have a bad offensive lineman. And especially because you know your center is good and you know your other side of the line is pretty decent too. You don't have to overpay to have that left tackle. So I, I think from the Chiefs' perspective, they looked at this from day one, that they envisioned him as a player that would be worth anywhere from 15 to 18. He established himself by the end of the season as a good left tackle. Um, and they offered him money that they felt would be at the, the top end of that second tier. I don't even like calling that a second tier because those other guys are elite. It's kind of like the top of the non-elite tier. 
of players. And they have a leg to stand on even making that argument. You know, just if, if you want to make that argument just from whatever perspective, uh, you know, let, let's just take a look here. You know, Tunsil, um, you know, who was traded, right? Um, let, let, let's see what the... Let, let me see if I can just pull up the, the trade compensation on that package. So on the Tunsil trade, Miami got two first-round picks and a second-round pick, some throw-in garbage players, and they gave away a fourth and a sixth and a nothing player in Kenny Stills, who was just done in Miami. So basically, you're talking about two number ones and a number two. Now... The Texans are the worst trading team in the NFL, but still, we saw what that package was. You look at Trent Williams. Now, the Trent Williams trade was nothing, but he was a player who was out in Washington. Nobody knew what the deal was with him health-wise and everything else. But as a free agent, he's probably able to go out there and peddle himself. And I think Sam, personally, I think San Francisco overpaid on that one by a lot. But, uh, and he's a great player. Don't get me wrong. You know, he's arguably, it might not even be arguable. He's probably the best tackle in the league, best left tackle. But, you know, I, I think when you consider the age and everything else, I, I think they, they kind of overpaid there. But again, he's a player who was selling himself in free agency. And obviously, if San Francisco signed him for, um, what did I say that number was? Like around 20.5 million a year? is what the legitimate number was. That means he had offers from other teams in the $20 million ballpark, or at least he was able to convince them that there were offers in the $20 million a year ballpark. In the case of Brown, the Chiefs, if I remember right, uh, when I valued that trade using the, the points that Brad and I came up with, uh, I think it was a late first round pick. Let me just see. Um, the Chiefs, this was, now this might not be the final stuff. I'm just looking at the, what Schefter said. Um, Chiefs send over the 31st, 94th, and 136th pick, as well as a 2022 fifth. Um, they get back a second, and there's a 58th pick and a sixth. Uh, let's see. I'm just seeing what I put this at. You know, I, I had a lot of thoughts here as to why they did this and how it kind of made sense financially if they extended him even up to 20 a year based on keeping Eric Fisher. Um, where is the number? Because I'm saying it was a first-round pick, and I don't know... Uh, okay, yeah, so the value on that was a mid-first-round pick. Probably on Twitter actually had the numbers that were there. But if you put the numbers in there of all the picks that they gave up plus what they got back, um, you know, it was basically a mid-first round pick they're giving up. And, I, you know, there's a bunch of different systems. You know, other systems, will, if I'm saying it's a mid-number one, other systems will probably say it's something around like a 25th pick, 26th pick. Um, but the Jimmy Johnson stuff probably says it's like giving up a late second or something like that. And that's what uh, I think the Chiefs were trying to tout when that trade was made. 
in any event, whether we look at that as a mid number one, whether we look at that as a late number one, even if we look at it as a number two that's given up overall, that pales in comparison to what Tunsil got when they gave up two ones and a two to bring him in. Now, obviously, there's different benefits that you get from bringing a player in when he's got some money on a rookie contract versus, you know, nothing existing. But every single team in the league had an opportunity to sign Orlando Brown this year and give the Chiefs two first-round picks as compensation. I don't, I don't believe Brown was an exclusive player. He was non-exclusive. And based on the Tunsil deal, based on the Ramsey deal, based on the Jamal Adams deal, based on a couple of trades, um, if he is truly looked at around the league as like this tippy-top, super elite-level player, you would give up two number one picks and the money without a problem. Once that stuff doesn't come in, from the Chiefs' perspective, you have to look at that and say, okay, very clearly, you are not looked at as being worth $22, 23000000 million a year. We made a trade with the Ravens, who paid their guy nineteen seven five, and they didn't think you were worth that to keep as well. So you're probably not worth that. You know, it's just looking at different data points, looking at different ways that you can you can just kind of value the market to come up with arguments for why you're not offering him 20, 20 plus, you know, especially if he's looking for 23 legitimately. Um, you know, I, I could see a situation where he's looking for a legitimate 23 a year contract plus the 71 million in guarantees that Stanley got. I, I think that's just doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, really for either side, you know, that that's like pipe dream, um, hopes, I I think in his case. And, you know, that, that is, uh, you know, the, the guarantee stuff that just doesn't make sense. So I, I think the chiefs have a legitimate reason to say, no, we're sticking with 18 2. And he has a legitimate reason to say, no, I need to be at 20 plus before I'm going to do a deal. So I think both sides are right in saying no. Um, And I, I think, you know, going back to Eric's point, I think it's right where you look at, you know, there's more information involved from the Chiefs perspective to where, uh, you know, you did give up a lot, but maybe this does become a luxury. And you know what? If it's a mid-first-round pick, it's a mid-first-round pick. Last time we drafted, you know, we drafted a running back. Okay, big deal. You know, I, I can give up drafting another running back. Um, you know, I, I think that all of that kind of, you know, comes into play from both sides. Both sides have more information. And from Brown's side, it should be that, okay, if my expectation coming in was 18, it's grown since then. And I think from the Chiefs' side, if their expectation was 18 is what they should spend on the position, I think given all the other factors, they probably look at that and say that's the max that they should spend. So both sides are right from walking away. Now, I think that the the stuff that came out where it was like both sides worked hard on this and they're hopeful for a deal next year, I think that's a bunch of baloney. Okay, the Chiefs, 
offering 18-2, like I said, that's kind of insulting. Uh, I think Brown, where he was, probably feels a little bit insulted. Um, you know, I, I would imagine that the, the course of action here to show that he's upset is for Brown to not report to training camp. He's not signed. He didn't sign his tender, so he doesn't have to. There's no fines. There's nothing like that. So you don't show up to training camp. And I would guess what you try to do is you will go out there and you, you will attempt to get two provisions. The first thing is you'll try to get a raise for the year. I don't know what the number will be, but you will try to bump your salary. Maybe you'll try to bump it to $20 million, something like that. The second thing you will try to do is you'll try to get a no franchise tag provision. If you don't get either of those, I think the logical course of action is for Brown to hold out until they get to the regular season. It makes zero sense for Brown to miss any football games. Not only has he not made a ton of money in his career, but for every game that he misses, he's going to forfeit about $920,000. That's a lot. And the other thing is that right now, his franchise tag next year, if he is franchise tagged, and I, I think there's a possibility he won't be, at a minimum, it would be $19.99 million. So $20 million next year would be his franchise tag number. I don't think the regular tag will probably get there. If he misses games, with every game he misses they will change that calculation. So if he misses, um, you know, a game and he costs himself 19, uh, 920,000 or so, his value is going to drop to about 15.7. At that point, his raise figure goes up to 18.9. Now you might just be at the regular tag number. If you miss two games, you're definitely the regular tag number. So all you're doing is costing yourself money short-term and potentially long-term by holding out into the regular season. You may not have to play those first couple of games. You know, if you show up, right, if you sign your contract right after training camp, you know, you, you can move in, um, you know, then get your money. They'll probably put you on exempt list for two weeks and then you'll come back in week three, but you'll get paid. Um so I, I would imagine that that should be his strategy uh, moving forward this season. Now, going beyond this, I could see a scenario where the Chiefs actually don't bother going through the franchise tag again. Um, but, you know, I, I think when you, when you go beyond this, when you look towards the future, I think the Chiefs would be in a position where after this year, unless, unless Brown really digs his heels in, which they'll know by mid-August the way any kind of negotiations are going, I think basically what you would do is you would just start to explore the veteran market. And you would go year to year with your, your left tackle position. Um, every year there's going to be a acceptable veteran, whether that's bringing back Eric Fisher, whether it's convincing Jason Peters to stop going fishing and coming back and playing, 
uh, whether it's to explore trades, you know, in the future, if you're looking for something a little more long term with the Jets for someone like a uh, Fant, like a George Fant or a uh, Mackay Becton, if, you know, Becton, who knows with him, um, you know, Becton gives you obviously access to a higher potential player that's going to look for some money, uh, but maybe doesn't, maybe isn't in the best of shape. And in Fant, who's more than a serviceable left tackle at this point in time, you know, and probably would come at a reasonable number because I think he knows he's not the, uh, you know, top line player. But I, I think that's the kind of stuff that you would do moving forward if you're Kansas City. Now, if you are... Um, <laughs> nothing. Uh <laughs> You know, if you're you're working on it this year, I think the the Chiefs' objective here is you, you you go into the season and you play. I think it's Jerron Christian as their backup. Use him during training camp. Um, you know, let him see how bad he might be. Uh, my guess is he's serviceable, but see how bad he might be, and then if things get really bad, and you think Brown is not going to come back to the team. You know, th- then you consider uh, maybe signing somebody. But my guess is you can get by with somebody on your roster for two weeks. Um, you know, while you get Brown in shape. Because it- it's to Brown's advantage anyway to play this year and to get in shape. You know, the, the Le'Veon Bell, who's the last player to actually hold out and really the first one for quite some time. You know, y- you want to be out there and you want to be playing. Um you know, even if you hold out the whole year, the team can still franchise tag you. I think the compensation drops to a one and a three. I'm too lazy to look it up, but I think that's the case. Um, the other consideration for the Chiefs here, just to just to bring this up, the Chiefs are not a big spending team. All right, the the Chiefs get by because they draft okay. They have a great coaching staff. They have a good front office. And obviously they have a fantastic quarterback. And when you look at the Chiefs spending patterns, the Chiefs are a seller dweller, more or less. So for the Chiefs to go up to $20, $21, 22000000 million a year for a player who is above average but not great, it compromises what they can do everywhere else. So, you know, I, I just pulled up the, the Chiefs spending, you know, for the last five years. The only year in the prior five years where the Chiefs were above the league average in spending was 2017. They ranked 11th in the NFL. Uh, they spent 103% of the cap. They were 11th. 2018, they ranked 22nd. 2019, they ranked 24th. 2020, they ranked 27th. 2021, they ranked 19th. Um, right now, uh, let me see where they rank right now. I didn't pull up for 2022 since we don't even have full rosters yet. 22nd. So they're a team that's going to be bottom third of the NFL. And this was one of the things that I brought up when they made the trade. They already had a lot invested in their guard and most teams don't do the guard tackle combo when it comes to salary. It's usually one or the other. You know, draft one, pay one. 
So I think when you factor all those things into play and you bring up the fact that, you know, what Eric said, that they have decent players on the offensive line now, you don't look at this as a must. Um, you know, last five years, they average spending 27th. In the last three years, 29th. Now, part of that's because they got Mahomes on a ridiculous contract that he signed. But even still, they're not spending up. You saw it with Tyreek Hill. You know, they, they clearly, uh, Tyreek Hill signed a, a contract extension that's about uh, 25, it's 25 a year. Um, you know, is what he signed the extension value at. I would guess the Chiefs were at 20, maybe 21. Clearly, they, they were not going to pay an extra four a year, even if it was only going to be over a three-year period. Um, they weren't going to do that. It would blow up their budget, blow up what they do. And a lot of your budget every year is fixed. You know, you have your fixed costs with Mahomes that you know. You have some of your fixed costs with your guaranteed salary players. You have players you know you're going to have to give a raise to. And you have rookies where the you know those salaries are kind of predetermined that you have to factor in. So I, I think with a team like the Chiefs, it, it's probably going to be harder for them to jump forward uh, compared to some other teams. You know, for a team like the Eagles that has what seems like an unlimited budget, the Falcons, uh, now the Falcons have salary cap issues, but if they didn't, uh, you know, those are the kind of teams that probably look at this and say, I ah, just pay them 22 and just get it over with. Um, Chiefs are not that team. And you can argue till you're blue in the face that every single team in the league has this ability to spend, um, whether it's because of franchise valuations, whether it's because of all the money they're going to be bringing in in two years. It, there might be some truth to that. But, you know, when you, you get into the nitty gritty, however these teams plan on spending, you have to honor the fact that this is how they plan on spending. And speaking of comedies, that brings you to the Cincinnati Bengals uh, with the offer for Jesse Bates, which not a lot came out about that one. Um, I said that this was going to be a problem all along. The safety um, franchise tag, the, those types of players are compromised greatly by the fact that the numbers are so low that teams can just tag two times and get a pretty good deal. Um on the players for doing the franchise tag two times uh, versus actually signing those players to a long-term extension. So I believe that uh, Rappaport was the one that put it out there that uh, they offered, um, let me see, what was it? Yeah, they, they offered Bates a guarantee that was about $4 million more than what he stated to earn on the contract. So that probably means they offered, well, that definitely means they offered him a $17 million signing bonus because that's all they're going to um, offer. And I would guess they probably offered him a minimum paragraph five salary with that. So probably 18 million, which would have been fifth in the league in terms of uh, first year payouts. Um, I don't think there was any talk of the annual value that was offered him. Um, let me just see. I think Rappaport was the only one that had any information on that. And again, I didn't reach out because I didn't really think there was too much there. Um, 
twelfth in total guarantees. Uh, looks like they offered him a six-year deal, which is ridiculous. Yeah, I don't see any other information on that contract. I can just tell you by that number, that's not a serious offer. Um, that that's also an insulting offer. Uh, you know, I said last week if the, if you want to at least um, make a compelling offer, you know, you you know that you're not going to do the big guarantee uh, because you're the Bengals. You have to at the very least get them the highest signing bonus you know which would be like 21 22 million a year um versus offering 17. you'd have to get a first year cash number that's pretty high i mean this is a team that paid trey wayne's like 50 million dollars in the first year of his contract right um how much did they pay wayne's in that first year let's see um player contracts i'll look up wayne's in a second uh, but you know you, you you had to make a a much stronger offer um, <clears throat> than this, even knowing that the Bengals are going to offer are going to hold those. So these no they they I'm sorry that Wayne's averaged 15. They paid him 20. So you know you you had to be much higher, um, you know on your numbers. I mean e even at, at quarters now uh, corners now 20 would be one two three four about 12th and a lot of those players weren't under contract when he signed so i mean it was a ridiculous amount that you were paying him up front um you know with the way that you did it uh the last time they had a player that would have been considered like that caliber now i think aj green is a better player than jesse bates but aj green would have been the guy now aj green got the 15 million dollar deal but he did get a lot up front. You know, he got $27 million in the first year of that contract. And given that the, the Bates numbers, that there was no one that talked about, like, um, you know, he was going to get paid $35, 36 $37 this year. Um, I'm sorry, not, not those numbers. I'm looking at the corner numbers. 26 27 28 you know, something like that, something that would beat the Adams Fitzpatrick numbers in the first year, even if you were going to fall, you know, much below them in the future. Um, you know, that that's just doesn't make sense. In my guess, they probably try to mimic the Justin Simmons contract. Uh, Simmons got 17 in the first year. Um, you know, that's probably what they tried to mimic was something like that, or Kevin Byard, which was 18-1. Simmons was on a franchise tag as well. I think he was on the second tag um, when he did that deal. So I I think that was more of what the Bengals were thinking, um, you know, with the deal. And, of course, this is going to send the Bengals fans kind of into a tizzy because it brings up the perception that the Bengals are cheap. And there is probably some truth to that, that the Bengals are kind of cheap. But I will say this in the Bengals' defense. The Bengals have spent more with this coaching staff than they have in the past. They, they have done some things to try to um, bring their spending levels up. In the last three years, they've ranked 13th in the NFL. This year, they're pretty low. But prior to this, the, the prior three years, 2021, 2020, 2019, 
Um, they did rank 13th. They were above average in 2020. They were below average in 2019 and 2021. Uh, they were above average in 2018, below average in 2017, if you want to go back a little bit further. Um, you know, but basically they've been kind of average over like a five-year period. So it's not as bad as some people think. I have a feeling because they're, they're pretty low this year. Um, I think they're looking ahead and they're looking at players they have to extend. And they're probably looking at this that Joe Burrow is going to get somewhere around $50 million a year. And they're probably going to have to come in with a massive signing bonus payment. Um, you know, again, when we're talking, um, you know, some of these deals, you know, you get to quarterbacks and you get to signing bonuses. Uh, the top number right now is 66 for Dak. Um, you know, so you're probably looking at a $70 million signing bonus at the minimum. Um you know, to, to get him kind of in the ballpark because you're probably not going to do the guarantees, though. There is some, uh, you know, if you go back to the Steelers with Ben Roethlisberger, there is some cases to be made with uh, injury protection. So I'm going to guess that maybe they, they could bring that up and get there. But my guess is you're looking at a $70 million, million signing bonus, uh, which might come uh, next year. You know, if he's you know if he's healthy this year, um, you know that that's probably the kind of number that you're looking at is like around seventy. And right now, he would be earmarked for a 2023 salary for cash wise of 5.5 million. So, I think you're looking at that. You're looking at some of your wide receivers. You're looking at the outlay of cash that you might have in the future. And I think you're you're probably saying you know safety is a position that we can drop out on but you know i i think i i just kind of like if a uh rather than going through making even these these kind of crappy offers i'd rather a team is just honest with it and just says we're using the franchise tag it is what it is we we can't afford to keep them long term um you know we'll, we'll see where things go in the future but this makes more sense for us um, you know, to just keep it this way and we have to be considerate of the future. Um, so I, I think that's what's going on in the uh, Bengals world right now. But I, I think they um, I think they just they, they made a mistake even making that offer. I think they probably just should have been like, look, unless you're going to sign for 15 a year, we're not even going to make you the offer. If you're not going to sign for like 15, 15, five a year, we're just not going to be able to get a deal done. And just leave it at that, um, you know, and go from there. So, you know, again, I just consider that like a, a completely insulting offer they, they probably shouldn't even bother with. All right, let's get into questions for this week. So the dude has a question here. Uh, a bit lost on how you break down Cooper Cup's uh, contract. Contract value put 80.1 with a 26.7 APY. Okay. Let me just run the numbers to see here. Okay. Uh, but if you do 26.7 divided by 5, you get uh, times 5, you get 133.5. How do you arrive at the 80.1 number? On the cash flows, you show 80.1 over 5, but again, that doesn't make sense to me. It's stated in my above point. Uh, am I reading the page wrong or does the page have an error? So, 
Here's the thing. We always value the contracts in new money terms. So let me, uh, first I'll make sure that there's no errors somewhere. But Cooper Cup had two existing years on his contract. Um, when we value the deals, not in every case, in probably 98% of the cases, it'll say other if there, there might be a different valuation. Um, excuse me. Uh, you know, typically we value them in terms of new money. So I don't have the cash in front of me here, but the, the 80.1 million is what he makes in new money. So the way that you would calculate it is this year he's going to make $30 million. We back out from that what he was scheduled to earn prior to that, which is $14.875 million. Second year of the contract, he's going to earn $20 million. We back out of that $14.875 million. And then it's pretty straightforward. He's going to make 20, he's going to make 20, he's going to make 19.85. So those first two years are kind of like prepayments on a new contract. The new contract itself, from a technical standpoint, doesn't start until 2024. So when we value in terms of new money, we're looking at the amount of money the Rams are paying him to play in 2024, 2025, and 2026. So what we do is we take those five years and we subtract out what he was going to make under the existing two of his old contract. That's our new money. Then we divide that by three. That That's what the Rams are saying. Well, we think this is what you would get if you were a free agent two years from now. Um, so that that's the concept of new money as to how you look at it. If you want to look at the divide by five number, um, that's what I typically call an effective APY, effective annual value. Um, excuse me. Other people refer to it as a paper APY, like it's on paper, like in the contract itself. It's stating a five-year contract. It's not stating a three. Uh, the Rams may even value it that way. Um, and maybe even from an internal perspective or from a certainly from a salary cap point perspective, you're looking at it as a five year. Um, you know, you, you're looking at it as a uh, uh, what are the numbers here? Uh, 30, 20, 20, 20, 1985. You know, you're looking at it as a 22. Um, it's actually probably a little bit higher than that because there's probably existing proration that's in there. Um, probably an extra three million in that. You know, your effective value is twenty-two point six is probably what you're looking at. But that that's just kind of the intricacies that come up with uh, valuing in new money uh, versus overall. One of these days, if I, if I ever get around to uh, doing a salary cap course, which is something that a lot of people have brought up to me when I, when I go around uh, who work in the league. Just doing something that, you know, you'd have a bunch of YouTube videos or something hosted where we go over it. And if you look at the YouTube channel that I rarely ever update, there's probably some old, old, old videos going over like components of a contract and stuff like that. Um, if we ever bring that up, you know, we'll, we'll be really be able to explain that, uh, I think, a little bit better to where you can learn it if you decide to take it. Um, 
but yeah, that that's the that that's how you value his contract, um, and why the numbers sometimes on the pages don't look like they make sense versus um, what the stated annual value is on the contract. All right, let's take a look at questions via Twitter. That came from uh, email. Uh, let's see. Okay, not too many this week. So that's a good thing. Uh, Buck Wild says, do you think Dax Hill can fill the shoes of Bates? Um, I don't think you have to worry about anything like that this year. I think Bates will, despite the fact that he's very upset right now, it doesn't make sense to hold out. Eventually Bates will report to camp. It might be at the first week of the season. Um, you know, I don't think Bates had a great season last year. Bates was probably a better player in 2020. Uh, 2020 than he was in 2021 he had a great playoff run um but you know i, I think uh i think they'll be fine tyler says can orlando brown hold out and demand kansas kansas city put a no tag clause for 23 in his franchise tag tender can a tag be personalized like that yes it can um he can ask for it doesn't mean he'll get it but um he can ask for a raise. The only thing that's limited to him at this point is unless the Chiefs release him, he's limited to signing a one-year contract. So basically he can sign a one-year deal and he can get a no-franchise tag provision. He can get a raise over what they're offering him. He can get anything that he wants. It's just that it has to be a one-year deal. Dave says, does the way the Eagles handle the cap make it a lot harder to ever do a hard reset on their cap held if they reached a down period and wanted to do it? Say what the Bears, Giants are doing now. With so much dead money on the books each year and prorated money seems undoable. Uh, they would not be able to do what the Bears are doing. The Giants are kind of dealing with it. So they'd probably be able to do what the Giants are doing. Uh, I think what you would see the Eagles have to do is to go through a period like the Saints where you're going to do, and maybe the Giants are kind of in the same boat if you look at where, where they're at over the last couple of years. Giants are just holding on to a couple of bad contracts. They don't really have a choice um, of what to do with. I think what you would see with them, now the, the Eagles are smarter um, than a lot of teams. So the Eagles have, the Eagles have, I call them levers. The Eagles have a lot of levers to pull to split dead money across two seasons. But in general, um, I think you would not see the Eagles be able to just say, screw it, we're just going to take a bunch of dead money in one year and just start over. Um, they would have to split those numbers over two years. They would probably have to keep a couple players maybe they don't want to keep. Um, you know, and defer that to the following season. So... I think it would follow more of a pattern like the Saints where you're like renegotiating contracts, restructuring contracts, doing some things that people from the outside probably scratch their head at a little bit. Um, but I, I think that's more what they would do is a couple of years in a row of dead money. That's probably at the Giants level this year, like 30 million bucks or give or take a little bit, um, you know, and go from there. But I don't think they would. They, they're not in a position where, you know, they, they they push that risk basically across their whole roster. And the theory is, and I, I think this is probably right, 
the theory is not every decision is going to work, but not every decision can be bad. Um, their problem would be is if every decision would be bad, they're screwed. Um, but I, I don't think there's been any indication that that's going to be the case with them. But um, it, it is harder than other teams because they, they are putting a lot more faith, I think, in their internal evaluations of everything. All right. Uh, Himothy, uh, thoughts or any insights into what Jamarcus Russell was saying about his contract and how he supposedly has to take less money in it? Was confused by the way he described it. So I didn't read the whole thing, but I did glance at that when I saw this earlier. Um, the way he described it was weird. At first he was talking about like what seemed like weight bonuses and stuff. I don't believe he had those in his contract at all. Um, you know, he made it sound like, you know, if I if I didn't weigh this on this date, like it was a problem and then the next date was less. And like, I, I, I don't have any record of anything like that in his contract from, you know, years and years and years and years ago. Look, Jamarcus, everybody brings up, Andrew Brant's the one who brings it up the most. They all bring up Sam Bradford. And they bring up Sam Bradford as the reason why the CBA changed in 2011. Sam Bradford is not the reason the CBA changed. Jamarcus Russell is the reason the CBA changed. Because Jamarcus Russell was a disaster. All right? Jamarcus Russell had that quote that I was laughing at last week where he said, call me the effing biggest bust of all time. He's right. He was the biggest bust of all time. To be a quarterback... First round pick, number one overall pick, and to not get a second job after you've been cut after just three seasons in the league is unheard of. So I don't know what he was talking about with that unless the Raiders were trying to make a case that his weight, which was a problem, I think he was over 300 pounds by the time he got cut, um in some way, shape, or form showed that he was not making a commitment to playing football. I don't remember if he was arrested. He, he might have been arrested after the fact, after he was cut. Um, let me look that up. I probably shouldn't say that unless it's... Let me see if he was. Yeah, he was... Uh... <laughs> Cody and Syrup. Um... Okay. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> anyway. Uh, yeah. That's. I forgot about that. Um, so I, I think what he was talking about in the little bits and pieces that I read where he talked about his contract being, what did he call it, a jive contract? I, I don't even know if he still understands what that was. So back at the time, the way things worked is teams paid players what was called a salary advance. They moved away from something that was called an option bonus. There used to always be option bonuses in a contract, there, which was the big bonus that was paid in year two. The way that it worked is you paid an option, and in return for paying the option, the player's salaries in year two, three, four, and five, or whatever, dropped lower because you executed the option on the fifth or sixth year of the contract, typically the sixth year of the contract. Um, there was a, a grievance hearing, I think it was Ashley Lee of the Broncos, 
where the Broncos look to get that money back when I think it was him. And I, I might be getting mixed up with the player. Um, basically, he refused to. Uh, um, yeah, I'm, I don't think it was Javon Walker. I think it was Ashley Lee. Uh, anyway, he had a uh, option in his contract. It wasn't a huge option. Um, and I think the Broncos tried to get that money back after he was traded. And ba- basically, I think that the Broncos case was that because he was traded and no longer a member of the Broncos, he was not entitled to the option bonus proration that they had paid him uh, for the future years because he was going to be playing in Atlanta. So he won that case um, in the grievance where it was determined that, which makes sense, when you pay an option, you're paying for the right to exercise the option. You're not paying for the right for him to play under the terms of that option. Um, So basically, he was allowed to keep the money. That led to a number of teams using something that was called a salary advance. And a salary advance means that you advance future salaries and you get technically repaid those salaries, um, you know, on the advance or... You know, if a player violates a guarantee, they may have to pay it back. So years later, again, the Broncos with Tim Tebow, when they agreed to a trade with the Jets, as they were about to finalize the trade, the Broncos basically said, well, you owe us X amount of dollars uh, to the Jets because we paid the salary advance to Tim Tebow and that's money that should be coming to us. That's not money that you don't have to pay him. You know, you owe us the money on the salary advance because it advances just that. And eventually they, they came to an agreement. But, you know, that that's the uniqueness of a salary advance, which I think the Eagles have used a couple of times. Nobody else really uses them. Uh, that gives you a lot of leeway if you're going to trade a player to, to maybe maximize your financial return that you can get. Um, by utilizing the advance versus a traditional signing bonus. But uh, I think that was the case. So by the time Russell had signed his contract, um, I don't remember if that was settled at that point or if teams had already began to just use that. Um, Because the Lily thing might have been after that. Uh, Let me look that up. Now I got to look it up. Grievance. So that grievance came in, yeah, 2006. So you probably had teams that were already utilizing the salary advance structure. uh, structure. And I think that was the issue with Jamarcus Russell. Um, I think because he was drafted in 2005, right? Uh, Let me just pull it. No, 2007. So he actually came afterwards. So yeah, this was probably in response to that consideration. So anyway, by that point in time, yeah, he definitely had a salary advance in his contract. So I think what the Raiders were arguing was that the portion of the advance that they paid him, which was, uh, you know, 19.9, it looks like. I'm just looking at his page here um, that I have. 19.9 million. 
and you would have had money that was related to each of those years. Um, you know, however much that would have been. Uh, I don't know if I have those numbers written. I'm just trying to see. Um, they advanced him for, let's see, 2010. I'm just trying to back into his contract. He was cut in 2010 or 2011? All right, it was cut in 2011. So let's look at 2011. So I think it was 5-3, it looks like, for 2011. 2-3 for 2012? No, 2-6 for 2012, probably. So they, they probably look to recover like 9 from the contract. So I think what they were probably trying to say is that he violated the terms of his contract in those two years. And they should be entitled to, they should get their money back from him because of that. Um, so I think there was two things that he was, that they were looking for here that he was probably mentioning. One, um, if you get into this, uh, when he's asked to take less money in, in the contract, I think what he's getting at with that is that they were probably saying, okay, look, we owe you um, $9.45 million in 2020 or 2010. They also paid him three to go away. So he had some of that guaranteed. Nine, four, and then five, eight. Um, they probably were looking to say, you suck. We've seen that plenty of times. Uh, we'll offer you a new revised contract that'll pay you $3 million in 2010, $3 million in 2011, $3 million in 2012. You know, something like that. You're offering somebody a pay cut. But he might have also been referring to the grievance because I saw comments about that where he talked about his contract was uh, whatever it was, Jive or something like that, um, that the Raiders were asking for money back. And I am sure that that was them asking for that salary advance back either because he got arrested, even though he wasn't under the contract anymore. I'm going to guess that their theory was that he was arrested and that arrest prevented him from playing with another team and the Raiders would have been compensated um, you know on offsets on the salary had he played with another team so I'm going to guess that that was one of the things the other thing that they could have probably tried to say is because he was out of shape that he was not um, making a good faith effort to be like a, a high quality football player and, you know, th those sometimes can be ways around guarantees. I have no idea what I eventually came from this. Um, you know, the, the Raiders, because of the uncapped season, were able to use a get-out-of-jail-free card with this guy. Uh, but I would guess that's what he's talking about. But I know some of the stuff I saw in some of his quotes didn't make a lot of sense, where it sounded like he was talking about weight bonuses and stuff. Uh, Marauder says, if Aaron Rodgers retires next winter, do the Packers have to clean house to fit his dead money under the cap, or can they still field pretty much the same team but would love it quarterback? So it would depend on when Aaron Rodgers retired. So right now, Aaron Rodgers has a um, option bonus of $58.3 million. So basically, as long as they agree in a second contract to just eliminate that. Um, 
they would be okay because, well, I don't know if they'd be okay, but your dead money at that point would be, let's see. I'm just going to give you a ballpark figure here. So right now, what would be stated on the page would probably be 98.5. Um, but you would get relief from that. You would back out the 58.3. So you would have 40.2 million dead that you would have to account for. And you could probably June 1 him. I'm just looking at the deal. It's 15, 8. So no, they, they would be okay. I think you would be able to... I'm just doing the numbers real quick here. Um... Yeah, I think you would be able next year to get him to modify his contract to remove that option bonus so it doesn't count on the cap. Uh, you would be able to bring his salary cap number down during the regular season to about 17. Uh, and then that would drop to 15.8. And then when June 1 rolls around, you or June 2nd, you put him on the retired list. So you, you would split his dead money 15-9 and 24-4. So it, it's not out of the realm of possibility that they could do that. Uh, the trade route is probably a little harder. Trade route, you're, you're probably looking at a 30 dead um, and with a credit coming the following year. But uh, yeah, you, if he retired, you, you would be okay with your, your cap stuff. And you know, you, you'd be able to do that. Uh, Wade is asking, if Watson is suspended all of 22, his contract holds. Yes, that's correct. Uh, what would his new 2022 and 2023 cap number be? Will it enable the Browns who are ready the most 2022 cap space to carry over more to 2023 and get a full season of cheap Watson in 2023? If so, I'm cheering for a 12 to 16 game suspension. So uh, if he has a full suspension for the year, um, his entire contract holds over. So basically, his contract is going to look the same. Um, you're just going to be shifting years. So if he misses the full year, you know, next year his cap number would be 10 instead of 55. And then it would be 55, 55, 55. And then in the last year of the deal, it would be 46. Um, so, yeah, you, you would obviously create a ridiculous amount of cap space next year. You wouldn't create additional carryover because the only thing you're saving is his base salary this year which is one um but you're shifting everything so you'd be doing that now if he played this year i don't know how it works if he actually plays just a game i would think his contract is fine um meaning you only save about one million this year and then next year he's going to have the same 55 cap hit um so i i think that's that's how it would work All right, let's see here. Uh, what do you think of Hunter Biden's taste in prostitutes? I have not followed anything that has to deal with Hunter Biden. So I have no opinion on that. I didn't even know that there was uh, issues on that at all. 
Lord Chiefs Raka was the Orlando Brown offer fair. I think it was fair from the Chiefs' perspective. I think if you just take a step back and take a kind of a third-party look, um, I think it was kind of an insulting offer. Um, the second part of it. I don't, I don't think making 18-2 is necessarily insulting. I think throwing that 40 last year in it is kind of insulting. Colin, uh, assuming William Jackson remaining money under the cap next year will be 2175, including voids, does that make him a potential cut? Was a June one would a uh, would a June one designation make sense? Uh, let's pull him up. Let's see. William Jackson next year has nothing guaranteed. Oh. Uh, fifteen seven five cap nine dead. I would not say that he would be a June one cut. Um, it would make more sense just to do a regular cut and take nine million dead. His his dead money I, I is not uh prohibitive enough um to bother with a uh, June one next year. I I don't I don't see that. Uh, as a possibility, let, let me just look on the back end. Let me just make sure I'm not missing anything with his contract. As the computer decides to freeze up, I don't show anything on the front end of the site. You know, so most of those numbers where, yeah, there's 22 or whatever remaining, most of that stuff isn't guaranteed. The salary is not guaranteed. The roster bonus is not earned unless he's on the roster, uh, like third day or something, league year. So, yeah, you, you would just, uh, yeah, th there's nothing there. So, um, yeah, so basically if you, you, you would just cut him out, right? You, you wouldn't go the June 1 route. So most likely he would be cut sometime in March uh, if you're going to do that. Uh why do you call yourself Jason over the counter? I'm not sure what I did, but I could have posted something. Who knows? The, the phone does some interesting stuff. Uh, is it realistic for the Jets to resign Quinn and Williams and carry uh, uh, John Franklin Myers and Carl Lawson next year? Is one of them going to go? Um, I don't... Well, yeah, it's realistic for the Jets to carry those guys. Look, the, the Jets still... The Jets are not invested in any position of um, note, you know, they, they, there's no real issues for them. Uh, salary cap wise, they are, you know, middle of the league next year. I know the numbers probably don't look great. Um, you know, effective cap space, they only have about 12, but they're basically middle of the league. So, you know, that is what it is. Um, you know, they, they can probably get rid of a couple of players if they want to. You know, Mosley, I think his guarantees were all gone, so you could save 15 there. Um, I don't think there is an issue if the Jets want to keep all three. Um, but I, I think Lawson has to obviously bounce back from not having played um, to make it realistic that they do that. Um, you know, Williams' cap number would go down with an extension. I just think right now, 
there's nothing that I've seen from Williams where if he's going to say, I want to be an 18 to $20 million a year player, there's nothing I've seen from him that would say, yeah, we should do that. Like, it, it just doesn't make any sense. You know, there's no consistency. Um, at the same time, there's no reason for the Jets to be carrying Lawson at $15 million if, you know, he gives you like four sacks and 10 games this year or something like that. So while I think it's viable for them to keep all three players, I, I think you have to wait to see how those, those players all work out. Um, Jason says, what are the chances Zeke gets released after this season? Well, I would think that's pretty good. Uh, his guarantees are gone, right? The only thing I'll say is the owner loves Ezekiel Elliott. Um, next year, he's scheduled to earn 10-9, 16-7-2 cap, 11-9 dead. Um, my guess is the owner loves him so much he would look to bring his salary down to around five million. Um, you know, bring his cap hit down to like ten or eleven. You know, somewhere in that ballpark, twelve million, and uh, keep him on the roster. So I, I'm gonna say just because the owner loves him a lot, there 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 might be a possibility that they come up with a scenario where they reduce his salary by a lot. But I, I would think if that doesn't come into play or he's not willing to reduce his salary, which wouldn't make any sense at all, um, you know, I would say they're very high. But I, I think that Dallas will probably try to um, come to some kind of arrangement to keep him on the team, even if it's in a part-time role. Uh, Andy says, how much do you see NFL revenues being impacted by inflation? Should we expect an abnormally large cap jump next year? Uh, I don't think it has anything to do with inflation. Their contracts, I believe, are set. So that shouldn't have anything to do with it. They, they have their TV contracts that are in place. I think those are going to hit the cap in 2024. Um, so I, I don't think the issues that we see with inflation, which are not good right now, uh, I don't think that has any impact at all. On the NFL, you know, people that are going to buy the tickets are going to buy the tickets anyway. So it's not going to drive local revenues down. Um, and I don't think it's going to drive local revenues up that much, um, you know, to really see a huge spike. Because, again, the ticket side of it is pretty much set. And I would imagine most teams that are going to sell out are going to sell out regardless of inflation. Your TV contracts are set. Your radio contracts are set. Your local stuff is set. So really, it would just be a question of like, do your jersey sales go up a little bit? Yeah, maybe. Um, but I, I don't think that's going to uh, amount to that kind of change. Uh, Jared, is Orlando Brown off his rocker? Has anyone been offered more for less in your recollection? Um, no, I, I, you know, Brown was offered an okay contract. It's not a great deal. I think Brown was perfectly right to turn that deal down because I think he would have made more money as a free agent, um, you know, whether it's this year or next year. So I don't think there's anything wrong with him, uh, turning that deal down. Um, 
definitely players have been offered more for less. I, I can, as a Jets fan, I can definitely tell you that for a fact. Uh, Jack, uh, have we officially heard there aren't void years in Baker's money? No, there are no void years in it. Um, I believe, again, this is just my belief, doesn't mean anything. I believe that this was simply because the Browns knew it's more trouble than it's worth. Um, if you look at what the Browns typically do, the logical, uh, course for them would have been to add void years to the contract but it's not an automatic it's something that they would have to negotiate and very clearly Baker's not looking to help the Cleveland Browns um, you know do what they want to do so it sounds as if um, this was a deal where the Browns basically said we will pay you this much money they probably told the Panthers this we'll pay this much of his contract you figure out the rest. And um, I think that's basically what it was. And so the void years didn't come into play because the negotiation went on with Carolina. And then I think Cleveland just signed the contract. I would not be surprised in the least if the contract itself, the contract language, all that stuff mimics a Panthers deal versus mimicking a Browns deal, even though the Browns are the ones that technically signed the contract because they had to put the signing bonus number in there. Uh, Jeremy says, can you explain the holdover cap charges for Whitworth? Um, they haven't put him on the retired list yet. So Whitworth's deal... Um, what do I have him on the cap right now? So I have Whitworth on the cap for $3.3 million. I have some stuff there that isn't in the contract anymore, like a roster bonus and stuff like that. So what they did was they reduced his salary to $1.12. Um, they got rid of that roster bonus. They got rid of the uh, incentive number that's showing on the website. Basically, what was there was going to be his. Um, I'm sorry. They they, they paid him two five. Uh, that was probably what his guarantee was for the year. So, uh, I'm just showing the two one six, which is the prorated number. The one one two, which is his base, and uh, that's where the three point three million dollar cap number comes from. The thought was they would put him on the retired list on June second. And his cap number at that point would drop to 2.16 uh, $2.167 million. And then you would see dead money the following year of uh, $2 million, right? Yeah, one, two, three, four. Yeah, $2 million bucks, uh, in 2023. They haven't processed it yet. So he's still technically on the active roster, uh, unless I missed the transaction. But I don't believe I did. So maybe... Maybe, maybe, maybe. Uh, he's not going to play for 1.12. Uh, but maybe there is a very, 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 very slight hope um, that he decides to come back this season and play football. I, I would guess they're just keeping that door open. There's different rules for uh, when a player retires. So I I'm just going to guess that they're, they're just... For an extra 1.12 million, keep that door open, 
until the last possible minute and then, you know, drop it. Uh, I, w- I would guess that's what's going on. But as far as I know, they have not actually retired him yet. Uh, Eddie's asking, do you see Odell Beckham landing anywhere except the Rams and what sort of contract can he command coming off some impressive displays but another big injury? Um, I don't think it's a big deal. I, I think the Rams would make the most logical sense. I think it would be, what did they pay him last year? Up to five? Uh, I would think it would be around the same thing at this point. Um, you know, I I don't like Beckham coming out and doing the whole bit where he was like, well, you know, I was I was playing on a torn ACL and all that stuff. Like, I, I don't think that helps you. Um, so they signed him for a deal last year that would have paid him up to five. If you prorated that out for the season, what would that have been? Um, that would have been a two-base call eighth week of the year I, I i don't have the week that's there um let's call it four yeah i i think you'd probably be looking at like a four or five million dollar contract and then another couple million in incentives to move maybe you can max out at 10 i think the the odell beckham um show is pretty much done i i think the rams make the most sense um I think if you wanted to look at some other teams, I, I think you would just look at teams that have like a viable quarterback and you know consider themselves playoff contenders. I don't see any way, shape, or form, unless we're talking about a middle-of-the-season acquisition, that he would be signing with a team like the, the Jets, signing with a team like the Bears, signing with a team like the even the 49ers, you know, that, that are, you know, they were obviously successful last year, but expected to, um, you know, play young quarterback and not expected to really compete for the playoffs, except for maybe be on the outskirts of it. You know, he, he's a player that, that belongs on a team that's going to make a playoff run and you knock on wood and you hope you can get something from him. Um, you know, if he doesn't go to the Rams, you know, the Chiefs, th- those are the kind of teams that make sense for him. Um, when he's healthy and he can play, but uh, he's—I'd be stunned if he got anything that was a base value over more than like four or five million bucks at this point. Uh, Flip says, "How did you get into learning about the NFL salary cap?" That's a good question, and I get that very often. Um, when you are a big fan of a football team, as I was with the Jets. And still am with the Jets, all right, even though they just suck beyond all belief. I mean, they they just pull the energy out of you. Um, you kind of fall into different things that you like to talk about and don't like to talk about. I'm a numbers guy. I'm a engineer. I like numbers, uh, even though it's not accounting. I kind of like accounting stuff as well. Um, I was always kind of fascinated by the salary cap. Growing up... Um, my thought on a lot of that stuff, and I'm a little bit older than the, the guys that I know that did that, but not by a lot. Um, my thought was to work in the NFL, you need to be a NFL guy. You got to be like a former coach. You got to be whatever. Didn't even think about that as a consideration. Like, you know, a normal 
someone who doesn't play the sport can in some way, shape, or form get involved in working in a front office. Um, never really would have thought about that. Um, but I gravitated towards discussing things about the salary gap. And I thought, and at the time, um, you know, we're, we're talking mid to late 2000s, the salary cap then played a more important role than it does now. Salary cap still plays an important role for the teams. It played a more important role then than it did now. Uh, whether that's because of rookie contracts, whether it's because teams have done a better job hiring, whether it's because the um, people that they've hired have been are just better overall. Um, you know, probably more when they come out of like college programs versus coming out of management council. Um, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, Never really thought about that. So I was like, oh, I'll do a website on this and see what I can learn about it. And I was just kind of fascinated by the rules. And then the more that you got into it, um, I was very lucky in the sense that when I talked about the Jets, there were not a lot of people talking about the NFL salary cap. All right. Joel Corey was, I don't know if he was still working. He was probably still working as an NFL agent. Andrew Brandt was still working with the Green Bay Packers. Um, your reporters didn't have as great of an understanding of it. They just relied on sourcing from agents. Uh, I had a great experience as you had the Jets that had a very young group of reporters for the most part. Um, you know, some people like a Rich Samini were lifers and Rich has been good to me over the years, but... You know, they, they were they were a little bit more grizzled, um, you know, who had been there for a little bit longer. But most of them were younger reporters who were about my age or a little bit younger. And they saw a salary cap website that was explaining stuff about the salary cap. And you had message boards and you had blogs like the Jets blog that were very popular at the time. Um, looking for stuff that was understanding about salary cap stuff. And it was a big benefit to me because it was a young group of people, you know, in their 20s and 30s that were like, okay, maybe this is legitimate. And you go to the organization and you say, is this legitimate? They take a look and they say, hey, this is pretty good. Um, it gives you an ability to make yourself like as an authority on something as you learn more about it. You know, you got to keep learning and learning. And so I branched out into doing all of the AFC East, which again was good because the beat reporters for the Miami Dolphins and the um, New England Patriots, I would say the Buffalo Bills, I didn't get a lot of traction with. Um, they were also younger and they liked writing about this stuff. And I was one of the guys they would lean on for understanding the rules and understanding where the teams were with that stuff. And as I got better with it, and it was just about learning it, you know, myself on my own, as I got better with it, the teams would go back, I, I think, to the reporters and say, no, that's, that's pretty accurate. Um, you know, that there are teams now that will recommend the website or recommend me to be like, well, we can't tell you this, 
go ask him. He'll help you with it. Trust me. He'll help you. Um, but that's really what it was. It was just that that was my little niche that I like to talk about. And I love to talk about the Jets. And that was one aspect of it that I talked about. And look, I still go back to those message boards that I used to post on. I'm still friendly with a lot of the guys that in the internet world I used to uh, chat with. You'll see me chatting with them on Twitter uh, about all different things. It has nothing to do with football. Um, just stuff. But that that's really what it was. Um, you know, but it, it was a it was a different path. If I had been more aggressive right from the start and just was like, yeah, I just need to do a salary website, which is really what the other website is, what Spotrack is more like. I never would have learned about the NFL stuff. I never would have been nearly as into it. It wouldn't have been as good. Um, now, it sucks that I, I power that website, uh, you know, and they, they, they do a fine job with the stuff that they, they do for, um, you know, collecting information from various sources, which, you know, we do as well. It's not like we don't. Um, but, uh, you know, in terms of knowing the rules and understanding the stuff, it was just a love for the sport and just a little niche that I could get into, um, you know, and just going from there. There was a whole group of guys that do that and I still keep in touch with them. You know, we still have our, uh, little direct message groups, um, you know, Ravens cat. Pat's cap in who does the Steelers, Troy, who does the Texans. Um, you know, a couple of us were in these old like Yahoo groups talking about this stuff. And, you know, years later, we're still here. Uh, we're, we're, we're the remaining ones doing it. Uh, you know, Troy would have been later on um, to that. But, you know, we're still the ones, <laughs> you know, doing it all these years later. If you can imagine a Yahoo like mailing list kind of group. Um, you know, to talk about salary cap stuff, uh, you know, that, that's, that's where a lot of us are. And that, that's why, you know, I always say, you know, follow these guys, you know, even if, um, you know, someone doesn't have as big of a platform or it's very specific to one team, um, you know, uh, Jason Hurley for 49ers, I think was on that same group. Um, I don't remember if, Sam Lynch was on there from the Eagles. He might have been. Um, you know, Bryce may have been as well, who now works in the league. Uh, you know, it was like a great group of guys to just bounce stuff off of. And I still bounce stuff off of people. Um, you're always learning something new every day. Trust me when it comes to this. Uh, Deadstroke. Uh, Jeremy Fowler noted that the Lions are working on extending TJ Hawkinson. What do you think an extension for him would look like? Uh, I would guess a little bit more than Njoku. Um, let me see. Let's take a look here. Let me just see. Um... So we had him last year around seven, which means he's a mid-grade tight end. Uh, you know, he's got first-round pedigree, top 10 pedigree, right? So they obviously are going to go a little bit overboard. Um, you know, I would guess if you got Njoku at 13-7, uh, Goddard's at 14-3, I would guess you're probably looking at like 14-5, 14-8 a year is probably the number that's going to be there. I don't think it makes sense for him, but 
I, I think that's what they'll do. Uh, then I think this is the last question. Are the Chiefs being cheap? Trading Hill, not wanting to pay out for Brown compared to the Bills, for example, similar with the Bengals, 28th in cash. If Cincy keeps this up, how will they be able to sign Chase and Burrow? So in the Bengals case, like I said, I think the Bengals are kind of um, planning this out a little bit in the sense that we've got Burrow coming up possibly next year. We have Higgins coming up possibly next year. We need to, uh, you know, to keep our uh, our budget in line, so you know we we can have the money to sign these guys. So I think for the Bengals, I don't think it's really being cheap. I think it's just saying that we've got these couple of core offensive guys we want to keep, and maybe the other players are a little bit more luxury. I think the Chiefs, if you look at the Chiefs more as a long-term and short-term, the Chiefs are just lower spenders. I think that that is absolutely the case with them. And I think because of that, it limits what you can do with the players on your team. Uh, I think that limits keeping a Tyreek Hill. It limits keeping a uh, Tyron Matthew. It limits keeping a um, uh, Orlando Brown, you know, for more than a season. Um, you know, I, I think all of these things are, I think they're all more a factor of budget than we consider. Like, like I mentioned, if you look at teams that spend a lot of money, so since 2017, not counting this year, your top spenders in the NFL are San Francisco, Cleveland, Philadelphia, Tampa, Minnesota, Chicago, Green Bay, New Orleans, Tennessee, Jacksonville. Um, those are your top 10. Atlanta's number 11. They would be much higher if it wasn't for their salary cap woes the last year or two. Um I think when you look at those teams, those are the teams you look at and say, all right, we're the teams that are going to spend money. When you get to the other side of the equation, you've got the Chargers, the Ravens, the Jets, the Colts, the Broncos, the Chiefs, the Dolphins, the Steelers, the Bills, the Patriots. Those are your cheap teams in the league. And you then have to look at those teams and determine, well, why are they being cheap? Jets are being cheap because they don't draft anybody they can keep. So I can't say Woody Johnson's cheap. I can just say the Jets suck. All right. Um, the Chargers, do the Chargers, are they cheap? Maybe. Um, you know, they haven't been great. So I can't say that for certain. The Ravens, yeah, the Ravens are probably cheap. You know, they're working with a limited budget compared to other football teams. The Colts, very clearly, limited budget compared to other football teams. Broncos, Probably a limited budget compared to other football teams. Chiefs, definitely. Miami, that's been more of a uh, a, a offset kind of stuff. That they, they've just, a reset kind of stuff. Pittsburgh maybe falls into that category. Buffalo has been a little bit more of a reset phase. Um, so I, I wouldn't put them in that cheap category anymore. Um, Patriots are probably a bit on the cheaper side. Um uh, but I think when you look at the Chiefs, you would say the Chiefs are limited in what they can spend. And that's why that um, 
that contract that they did from Mahomes is just so great for them because it gives them so much long-term certainty. And it's so low compared to what he should earn. You know, it's just such a great deal for them. Um, you know, fantastic. So, um, yeah, I, I think when you look at those teams, um, you know, I, I think that's just some of the stuff that uh, that you would look at um, with the spending there. But, yeah, I would say the Chiefs, there's definitely a consideration that exists when it comes to spending um, there. I think the Bengals are more about future planning and saying they're willing to be middle of the league, but they want to make sure they have the ability to keep the guys they feel like are difference makers. And, you know, one of the things, maybe, maybe I'll do some research on this in the future. Maybe we should talk about it. You know, I, I think more and more and more teams realize that with the exception of quarterback, you know, quarterback you just need to be good at. I think there's more and more and more teams that are starting to come to the the thought process, the the reality of, and I, I think this might be right. You can only be as good, even for a team with a good, like a great quarterback. Your great quarterback's going to overcome a lot, but your weak link is always going to be a problem. You know, if, if there is an ability to um, really expose a weak unit on a team, a weak area on a team, you probably won't be able to take that next step into being like a legit Super Bowl contender. So I think as more and more teams look at that, the concept of the super group, which was more of an issue, I think in the early to, uh, I'm sorry, not the early to mid 2000s, in the early part of the 2010s, 2010 to 2015, 16, where you start to see more and more of these super group units, uh, where you invested a lot in a couple of players and then kind of backed off. I think teams are starting to come to the realization that you probably are better off having a team, if you have a great quarterback, have the ability to be, at the very least, average everywhere, Versus being above average in a couple of spots and then just trying to like figure out how you're going to fill the gaps in elsewhere. You know, where, where you're just going to be like, well, I'll get a couple of UDFAs and a couple of minimum salary guys and throw them in there. I kind of think for the better teams, that day is done. Like they, they realize that they might be better off instead of having, you know, I'll use the Chiefs for an example, instead of having a high-priced left tackle, left guard, and, you know, have draft investments on the line, you're better off having a a pay one left, ta- uh, left guard or guard or whatever, you know, a draft pick who's decent and just getting some guys who are average. You know, instead of paying $22 million a year for Tyreek Hill you're probably better off having the ability to have a decent safety and a decent wide receiver versus maybe a great wide receiver and a terrible safety. You know, I think those are the the kind of considerations that teams are starting to make. 
And I think that's more of what you can do. You can probably pick and choose in today's NFL what are the units maybe you can skimp on. Um, you know, if I had a guess, if you're a good team that plays more often than not from ahead, you can probably pass on linebacker. You could probably pass on tight ends. You could probably pass on running back. Um, you know, if you're a team that plays from behind, uh, you know, you probably need linebackers to stop that running game late. You might need defensive tackles. That might not be a position that, like, um, those better teams need. But I, I think what you're looking for is competent play across the board. And especially if you have the great quarterback, all you need is that quarterback to have a hot, like, a really hot game. And as long as you're competent everywhere else, you'll be fine. But even if you have a hot game and, you know, you, you've got a secondary that's Swiss cheese, you're going to get eaten up alive when you go play against Mahomes or Josh Allen. You know, if, if, if you have an offensive line that is absolute garbage, you're going to get eaten up when you play against these teams with a pass rush. So I, I think more and more teams are realizing that maybe you don't want to go crazy um, you know, at certain positions, especially when you have the quarterbacks making over 40. You can't afford to go crazy at like three, four other positions. You need to be somewhat average, above average there so you can make yourself a quality unit across the board. Um, when you have a rookie quarterback, it's probably different. You know, with a rookie quarterback, you can probably go out there and you can overspend at certain positions and say, I'm going to make a super unit because my quarterback only costs me four. So I can make a handful of super units and still be average like everywhere else because my quarterback makes four or five, six, seven million a year. Um, but I, I think what we're starting to see from the teams that have these high-priced quarterbacks, not all the teams, um, you know, the Cowboys wouldn't be in that in that boat, I don't think. Um, I think we're starting to see this realization that you're better off that you have a team that's good across the board, but not great anywhere. And you won't have weaknesses that other teams can expose. And I think that's better than having a great trait, you know, a, a great um, unit somewhere that might make a difference. And, you know, I'll use Kansas City as an example, since I, I just said they were kind of cheap or on the cheaper end. You know, if you do have Tyreek Hill, Tyreek Hill is going to rely on a couple of things. His success and Tyreek Hill, I, I wouldn't say Tyreek Hill is a streaky player, but Tyreek Hill's games are streaky. Like he has games where he is just feature of an offense and doing great. And then he has games where, you know, doesn't do a lot. Tyreek Hill's impact on the game is impacted by a lot of stuff. If Patrick Mahomes has a terrible game, Tyreek Hill's not going to have a good game. Now, Patrick Mahomes doesn't have a lot of bad games, but the games when he does, it's not like Tyreek Hill is going to make a difference. If the Kansas City Chiefs offensive line is a turnstile unit, Tyreek Hill's not going to have an effective game. He's not going to have time to get open 30 or 40 yards down the field. 
20 yards down. He's not going to have time to get open. You know, his quarterback's going to be being dragged down all the time. So he relies on other stuff. And, you know, it, it kind of depends on what that reliance is as to what you can and can't get. Now, is Valdez scantling Tyreek Hill? Absolutely not. You know, I think Tyreek Hill is a, a tremendous player. Um, he is everything that I think people thought Deshaun Jackson would be. And, you know, obviously a lot more than that. You know, he I think he can make an, a difference for an average to above average quarterback. But when you have an absolutely great quarterback, I think you can make do with other spots. And you can shore up other units to try to have a better chance of being, you know, ultra competitive in the playoffs versus just over investing in your passing game. Um, you know, which is probably what the Chiefs were facing with Hill Brown and, uh, you know, the Mahomes contract. So, you know, I that might be an interesting discussion uh, for some point in this summer. That that might be one of those things where maybe we get a couple should get a uh I should get a couple people involved in something like that, do a uh, happy hour um discussion. Uh, <laughs> you know, that, that might be interesting to see what is what are people's thoughts on super unit structure versus overall like kind of average when you've got that one super player. Might be an interesting discussion. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, we'll do a little work on that in the future and see. So, all right, that will do it for me. Um, once again, thank you for the uh, beer suggestions for the week. This has been uh, good. So uh, hopefully I will be back next Saturday. Um, everyone will be uh, back regular time. So hopefully I can do it Saturday night, sneak in a couple drinks uh, when doing it. Um, but thank you very much for listening. And Nelly, you have anything before we sign off here? Nope, Nelly has nothing. I think Nelly is scratching or something. I don't know. So anyway, everybody have a great week, and I will talk to you all again soon.